Our scripture reading this morning is from uh, the book of James. Yeah, thanks. It's on page 1011. <laughs> okay, and if, <clears throat> if you don't have a Bible, uh, please take the one uh, from the pew that uh, we would love to have that, give it to you for a gift from us. James, the servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes of the dispersion. Greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Kay. Sorry about that. We decided we bit off more than we could chew with all those eight verses in this first, uh, first series, so... Uh, we decided to shorten, shorten it up here in this first message. But oh, good morning to each of you. My name is Bill. I'm one of the pastors here. We're really glad that you're here with us and joining us as we start this new journey in the book of James. That's where we're, we're at today. And so I'm um, excited for that and to be looking at this book together over the next eight or so weeks together. Uh, and I'd love to begin, uh, as we do each time as we look at the message, as we continue in this part of our worship service, to pray and ask that Jesus would be present with us by the Spirit to help us to not only be hearers, which is such a key uh, theme in, in James, not only to be hearers of the Word, but to be doers of it also. So let's do that now together. Father in heaven, we do pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would enable us to do what we cannot do on our own, which is to not only be hearers, but doers of your Word. So we pray for the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, to hear and to obey for Jesus' glory. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, in the March of this year, 2021, um, a, a JPEG file, a, a piece of digital <laughs> bits and bytes on a computer, a digital image sold for $69 million at Casey's, uh, Christie's Auction House. So, so this is not, wasn't a printout of this file, but the actual file, and this is, this is what was sold. It was this, this image. It's a compilation of actually 5,000 smaller images um, by the, the digital artist Beeple, who had posted a, a piece of digital art every day for 5,000 days. So this is a compilation of all those images. And that, that's, that file, that, that image, the, not, again, not a printout of it, but the actual digital file sold for $69 million. Now, the reason that this piece of art, of digital art, that can be copied and downloaded, like I just right-clicked on a file on the internet and downloaded it and put it on the screen here for you this morning. How can you have a piece of, of, that can be copied and downloaded? How can that be worth $69 million when anyone can just get it for, for free? Well, there's a new technology. It's the same kind of technology that's behind uh, the cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin you may have heard of. And I, again, I don't understand all this work, but it's, it uses uh, blockchain technology to allow artists to digitally sign, again, not just a printout, but an actual file, as this is the unique, the original, the only one, that this is the real one, not a copy. And that's what makes it so valuable, that I can download a, a copy of it, but someone out there paid $69 million and has the rights to the original file, that this is the one. And again, it makes it valuable because, because we want the real thing. And, and the real thing is harder to come by, right? Because anyone can go into uh, an, an art gift shop or online at Amazon and buy a poster of the Mona Lisa for a few bucks, right? But only, only the Louvre in Paris has the real thing. 
The real thing is harder to come by. Real hardwoods are harder to get, more expensive than, than laminate. Real food, like good food, it's a lot harder to get than, than fast food. Real paintings, real friends, they're all much harder to come by. And the same is true of real faith also. Actually trusting that God is going to care for you, that he loves you even in the midst of difficult circumstances, that he's actually with you even when all the, the signs that you, you think of him being there seem like they're absent. That, that kind of real faith, even when life is falling apart, that, that kind of real faith is rare. It's rare. So where do we get that kind of real faith? And, and I think if we're honest about that, we know, nobody wants a knockoff faith. No one says like, ah, I, I kind of want an imitation of that. And, and even from experience, those who say they're happy with something then well, sort of less than, than real faith often will end up walking away uh, eventually completely. And, and we, don't, we don't want that either. So, so a key question here is, do you want the real or do you want the imitation? Do you want the real, or will you settle for the imitation? And what we discover in this New Testament book of, of James, and, and I hope you, if you're taking notes, if you would write this down, that God wants real faith for us. That God wants real faith for us. Not, not just something that he wants from us. And sometimes I think we treat it that way. Is, is faith is something that God demands from us, that he wants from us. But I want us to even reframe that. from the, the, A life of real faith is what God wants for us. That it is the path to, to knowing, to flourishing. That a life of real faith is what God wants for us. And why is this message of real faith so important to the author of this book, uh, to James and, and why does he write this letter? And to understand that, we need to know a little bit about who he is, who James is, and who he's writing this letter to. And in verse 1, he identifies himself this way. He says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, throughout uh, the early church history, he was known as James the Just. And early Christians recorded this because he, they, they said, this is a guy of outstanding virtue. That's how he was known. But there are a number of people in the New Testament who have the name James. And so the, the question is, which, which one of those James was James the Just? Because when you read the Gospels, these four accounts of Jesus' life, and ministry, his death, his resurrection, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those are kind of what begin the New Testament portion of the Bible. You hear about a James who's one of the 12 disciples. In fact, he's part of the kind of inner circle of Jesus, often mentioned as Peter, James, and John. James and John are, are, are brothers. Um, so that's one contender for, could this be the person who wrote this letter? But most likely it's not James, because he, that, that particular James, because he was martyred really early on. If you read on after Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you get to this book called Acts, which tells the story of the early church, and James uh, is killed by Herod in Acts chapter 12. So he's, he's killed way before um, probably he would have ever had a chance to write a letter like this. So this is not James, Jesus' disciple, Peter, James, and John. This is likely James, Jesus's brother. And it's obvious reading the, the four gospels that Jesus had other brothers and sisters uh, actually, at one point, the gospel writers record them being kind of embarrassed by Jesus, think that he's crazy, they're trying to get him to stop what he's doing. Um, and that Jesus had brothers and sisters in the culture of large families in the first century, that's not at all surprising. 
But I think what is surprising is that James, who was Jesus' brother, ends up calling his brother Lord, God, and says he's his servant. Now, I don't know how many of you in the room have brothers and sisters. Uh, Imagine most of us, many of us, have brothers and sisters. I I don't know what it would take for you to come to a point of, of worshiping your brother or your sister as God, and submitting your life to them and calling yourself their, their servant, um, I don't know, it might take them coming back from the dead. Um, at least that's what it took for James, because uh, it's clear uh, in the Gospels that he thought that this guy, is, Jesus, is kind of crazy at some point. But we read in 1 Corinthians 15, as Paul is recounting the different people who Jesus appeared to after he had risen from the dead, that James, this James, his brother, was one of those, and it changed his life forever. And he comes to realize that this Jesus was not just his brother, but was actually God made human. So that's who's writing this letter. And and at some point it's clear that James becomes a leader in the Jerusalem church. He's the pastor. He's the pastor of, of these Jewish Christians in the city of Jerusalem where this Jesus movement began. But who is he writing to? Well, it appears that it says here in the, in the letter that he's writing to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. And sometimes that language of the 12 tribes, you read other books in the New Testament letters, like First Peter identifies this, and, and it seems like when he's talking about using that 12 tribes language that he is referring to all Christians, Jews and non-Jews alike, as part of this identification of being part of God's chosen people now. But here it seems like he really is writing to Jewish Christians from Jerusalem who have been forced to flee their homes and who are now living in other parts of the Roman Empire. Because again, in Acts chapter 11, we're reading about some of this early persecution of the church, and it says this, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, Stephen was the first um, Christian recorded in, in the book of Acts to be killed for their faith in Jesus, that those Christians traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. So imagine the situation, right? This, this early group of Christians following Jesus, they're, t- they're, they're there in Jerusalem. Maybe some of them became Christians on that, that first day of, of Pentecost when the Spirit descended and Peter preaches this really powerful sermon and thousands of people. So you have these people, many of them went back to their homes, but some of them were residents in Jerusalem. So maybe they became Christians that day. And they've been meeting together, they've been trying to follow the way of Jesus and learn what it means, and then all of a sudden Stephen is martyred. And they have to flee, and so now they're, they're refugees throughout the Roman Empire. And James, their pastor, knows they're facing new challenges outside of Jerusalem. And, and so like a good pastor, uh, he starts speaking to his online audience, right? He speaks to this audience that can no longer gather in, in person, and he writes this letter to them. So I was just even trying to imagine, because sometimes I think we, we think the people of the Bible, they're just these kind of ancient historical figures, they seem kind of flat, but th- these are real people uh, who actually lived and experienced these things. And so, you know, you could imagine, uh, trying to put ourselves in their shoes a little bit, that what if all of a sudden some kind of violent persecution against churches in Kansas City broke out? And, and maybe one of our pastors, maybe Pastor Taylor is, is killed for his faith. A- and the rest of us have to flee from Kansas City with our families. And, you know, we're going to western Kansas or up to Iowa or out to Montana or wherever. We're just, we're getting out and, and kind of hiding out in other places. We're leaving behind our jobs, our connections, just trying to survive. And then 
me or one of our other pastors, we got to get together and, and send a letter, send an email, send a message to our church that's been scattered and, and tell them how to keep going, how to keep living the life of Jesus. So that, that's probably what's, what's happening as best we can understand. And one of the greatest temptations for them is to avoid persecution, is just go back to, again, they're, they're, they have this Jewish ethnic identity, go back to Judaism that rejects Jesus as Messiah. Because in the Roman Empire, Judaism wasn't, wasn't necessarily a celebrated faith, but it was a legal religion. It was a recognized religion in the Roman Empire. You could be a Jew and practice Jewish religious practices, and that was an accepted within the Roman Empire. But Christianity was not. So there's a lot of temptation to kind of say, well, I'll just kind of, just kind of blend back into the background as a Jew, rather than having this distinctive identity as a follower of Jesus. And James, their pastor, is writing and saying, don't do that. And more than that, don't, don't see standing with Jesus as a burden, but, but rather see even these hardships as a gift. And that's our first main point this morning, that, that real faith, real faith receives hard things as a gift. Real faith receives even the hard things as a gift. And when I say hard things, I mean challenges, trials, testing, suffering, anything, and this can be big or large. It is, you, know, you might like, oh, the cancer or the loss of a child, like that's hardship, and what I'm going through isn't hardship. But really, what I want to say is that hardship or challenge, anything that's going to cause you, so this could be a big thing or a small thing, but cause you to doubt the goodness of God, the love of God for you, that, that he is, in fact, real, that he wants your best. Anything that is going to be a temptation to cause you to doubt those things fits in this category of hard things. And again, that, that might be a loss of a job. It might be just a, a really difficult parenting situation. Or it might be something much bigger, a collapse of a marriage, the death of a loved one. But anything that causes you to doubt God's goodness, his love, his care, his existence, his his goal for your good. But real faith receives those things as gift. And, and I, I, I tremble a little bit as I say those words because I know the kinds of suffering that the people in this room have faced. And, and not just in the abstract, but right as your, as your pastors, we've walked with you through these seasons, seasons of, of infertility, hardships in marriage, parenting, cancer, loss of loved ones, loss of children. Like those, those trials of suffering, those are not abstract things. And we read your prayer requests. We pray over them, the health struggles, all of it. And I'm here to tell you, though, telling us, telling me, reminding myself that part of growing in real faith in Jesus is to receive those things with joy. Now, I know. It seems trite. It, and yet, it is what James says here. So what does he mean by that? And, and, and it's not just James, because this is also the consistent teaching of the New Testament, right? This is not just James. And James is getting this from Jesus. You see it in Paul. Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 3, Rejoice, even though you're grieved by various trials. And First Peter 1, 6 says the same thing, essentially. Jesus himself taught us that blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, Matthew chapter 5, verse 10. And, and even in that context, right, the blessedness means 
not just some sort of spiritual stuffy, but like really the idea is happiness or joyfulness. And so I know, I know for some of you today, this may be really hard to hear. For others, it may be really hard to believe. And, and in fact, maybe the suffering, the uh, things in your life have made you say, I, actually, this is one of the reasons I say this can't be true. But here's what we need to remember. The presence of joy is not the absence of grief, or the absence of pain, or the absence of confusion or loneliness or fear. In fact, a better translation of this verse is probably pure joy, in the sense of, of real joy or, or true joy. But not only joy when you meet various kinds of trials. So it's not that joy becomes the only thing that you're experiencing, but you can, you can experience true, real joy even while experiencing suffering. And increasingly we're understanding this not just from a theological perspective, but even from a, a neurobiological perspective. As more people study the brains, and actually the, the physicality of our, of our neural networks and how this works and emotions and, and joy and all these different emotions and how they work together and how our brains are wired, we're learning this from a neurobiological perspective also. Or, you know, you can put this another way, that neuroscience is, is validating or, or catching up to what Jesus and the scriptures have taught for thousands of years. And so uh, recently there was a book called, uh, written called The Other Half of Church, where a couple of theologians are taking some of these insights from neurobiology and, and applying them to life in the church. Listen to what they write. It's a little longer, but I think it's worth it. So it was so helpful, I think, in framing how James talks about joy here. They say it's important to remember that joy is not strictly an emotion, we might refer to it as a supra-emotion because it can go on top of and connect with other emotions. Let me give this example. So, for example, if I lose my job, this is not usually considered a joyful occasion. Instead, I'm probably feeling some combination of sadness, fear, and anger. However, when I experience those unpleasant emotions and can simultaneously feel that God is with me, I have added joy into the mix. Now I'm feeling sad and joyful, fearful and joyful, angry and joyful. Again, this is so key here. Joy does not replace the unpleasant emotions. Instead, it combines with my emotions to make me relationally connected in distress. You know, we walked through and looked at joy quite a bit in our Philippians series earlier this year, and one of the ways that we define what joy is, is joy is someone who is glad to be with me. That from an interpersonal neurobiology standpoint, that joy is this experience of there is someone who is glad to be with me. And when we have that, we can experience joy because it's about relational connectedness. So even in the midst of my fear, even in the midst of my unknown grief, whatever it might be, that if I know that I can be connected to God, to others, that I can feel a sense of, of, of joy and hope even in the midst of those things. And Voskamp in her book, 1,000 Gifts, she adds this. She says, the secret to joy is to keep seeking God where we doubt he is. The secret to joy is to keep seeking God where we doubt he is. And just sit with that for a moment. I wonder where in your life right now you feel like God isn't. You know, if she says that to seek God where we doubt he is, where does it feel to you like God? God is just not present here. Maybe it's a particular situation at work or 
in your marriage or parenting. I don't know where it is. Maybe it's a, an addiction. You say, like, God does not feel present when he's at work there. What would it, what would it look like to continue sort of in faith and, and hope and trust to, to try to seek him in those places where you doubt? I was reflecting on that myself this, this week, and I was like, where is that? And one of the things that came to mind for me is just, we, many of you know we've been in this process of searching for a worship pastor, and it just feels like a really hard time to, to make hires and to find people, and it's like, I, I think I've realized, like, I've come to doubt that God is really present in that. And I, and I probably haven't prayed as fervently, as diligently, trusting that, no, God, you have a plan here. You're going to provide just the right person in the right timing, I know you've done that in the past, but you just don't feel present in this right now. Here's the next thing we need to notice here, is that real faith keeps going even in the testing. Real faith keeps going even in the testing. This is James's next point. Let me read a little bit more here in, in verses 2 and 3. We read verse 2 already. Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know, and he gives this, this is why we can do this, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Steadfastness, is that's where I'm getting this idea of, of keep, keep going, that it keeps going. And the word testing here, the testing of your faith, is not... It's not my favorite translation of this Greek word, because when we hear of testing, I think we think a lot about other things than what I think James has in mind. So we might think of like an algebra test where you're sort of testing the, the, the abilities or the skills that you have, and you kind of pass or fail that test, or you think about a laboratory test, you know, we're going to test this paint to see if it has lead in it, either it does or it doesn't. Um, that's, that's not the kind of test that, that, that James is getting at here. The word testing here is most used in the context of, of metallurgy, of working with like a gold or a silver, and more of refining it or testing it to see if there's dross in it and to burn that out, to purify it. That can only, though, be done in context of intense heat. So what is, what is James saying? That the part of the reason we can have joy is that we understand that God can and he does use suffering, pain, loss, hardship, whether it feels small or it feels really big, to refine us, to produce within us the capacity to persevere, to be steadfast. And again, that's the idea of the, the steadfastness, the ability to keep going under a heavy load of circumstances. I don't know if you've ever been around someone who has really been shaped by suffering in that way. Um, but if you have, and I have, I've walked with people who've experienced deep suffering, and it produces in them a, a kind of groundedness and maturity and character and steadfastness that's truly incredible. One of the things I get to do um, as a pastor more broadly in Kansas City is I serve as a chaplain for the Kansas City, Missouri Police Department. And one of our other chaplains, uh, who's a, a pastor on the, the east side of Kansas City, um, in an African-American uh, church context there, he has just recently gone through incredible loss. So he, he texted us and said, hey, I, I'm driving back from my, my sister's funeral. So he was at his sister's funeral. I just got word that my, my son, my adult son, has a blood clot. He's in the hospital. We're not sure if he's going to make it. The son's beginning to recover. We met with him the next day for um, some interviews that we were doing. And then we get a text that night that his daughter was in a car accident 
And one of his granddaughters was killed in the car accident, seven years old. Just like Pastor Jones, like how can you endure? And he just, there was a sense though, he said, but you know, God is still good. And it was not a trite sort of God is still good, but it was a, a man who has walked with Jesus for 50 years. He was going through intense suffering. And that there's this, not, not a Pollyanna sort of everything's just going to be fine. This is all great. I mean, there's deep grief, but there was a sense of groundedness, and maturity, and strength even in the midst of that. I want that kind of faith. I want that kind of life with Jesus. Now, again, this language of testing can be tricky because we can confuse it sort of, again, with the idea of like a, a COVID test. Like either you have it or you don't have it. Either it's positive or it's negative. And, and that's not what James says. It's not a test of do you have faith or do you not have faith? Sort of like you go through this test and then you realize, oh, no, you actually don't have faith. And then you do have faith. But rather, it's, it's a testing of the kind of faith that you have, the strength of the faith that you have. I mean, James is writing to people who have faith in Jesus. That's his audience. So this isn't a test of do they have faith or do they not, but what kind of faith do they have? What is it, where does it need to be refined? Where does it need to grow? And how can this testing produce that? In that sense, it's, it's a bit like, more like lifting weights, right? If you walk into the gym, like you have muscles, like your body has muscles. Isn't it? We're not determining like, do you, do, do you have muscle tissue on your body or do you not? Like you have muscles. But as you go into the gym to lift weights or to do push-ups or whatever, you're, you're actually determining, okay, how, like, how much can I lift? And, and the more that you, you lift and train or the more push-ups that you do or whatever it is, it breaks down those muscles, it stretches those muscles, it puts them under stress, and then they heal and you, and you grow in your capacity. That, that's the kind of testing now, James is not saying that all these trials and suffering lives are, are part of, like, God's plan for us, that he, he planned out a long time ago that you were going to go through all this suffering, and he's the one who's directly causing that. God isn't persecuting his church. He isn't torturing you. It's very clear that there is an enemy at work. And ultimately, he doesn't long for any of us to suffer. I mean, James is very clear. God does not Try, like tempt anyone. That's later on in James 1, that he's a good father. All good gifts come from him. But he does allow this suffering to test our faith, to burn away the dross, to purify our trust in him. And listen, James points out that because of this testing, though, that we can at times fail the test. Yeah, not the test of whether we have faith, but that we can go through circumstances where we do not do what he would long for us to do in that situation. I think the Apostle Peter is a great example of this in the Bible. If we want to look for an example in the Bible, where Jesus tells Peter before he's betrayed, like the night that he's eating dinner with Peter, the night before he's arrested and, and then is going to be crucified, he says to Peter in Luke chapter 21, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that you may not, your faith may not fail. Jesus is saying, Peter, I'm praying for you that you will pass this test. But if you know the story, you mean, you know Peter does not pass this test. He fails it spectacularly. He denies Jesus three times, denies that he even knew him, and he was one of the ones who was part of Jesus' most inner circle who said, Jesus, I'll die for you. And yet Jesus restores him invites him back. And so important is this for Peter in the early church that his initial denial of, of Jesus and his subsequent repentance is included in all four of the Gospels. It's in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This is such a key moment of watching Peter fail and then Jesus restore him and, and refine him through this testing. 
its ability to persevere isn't an end of itself, though. It, is lifting, it isn't just lifting weights so you can lift more weights. The goal is something else. The goal is something more. The goal is completeness, wholeness. If we're using the body metaphor, it's, it's, the goal is health, not just being able to, to lift more, to be stronger, but to, to be healthy, to be whole. And that's what we see next, that real faith leads to wholeness. And this is the hope that this pastor, Pastor James, holds out to his congregation, his congregation that has fled their homes, that has lost their jobs, uh, that, that are now refugees spread throughout the Roman Empire, that has gone through so much trial and testing. But the reason that he can say to them, consider it joy, is because he sees the outcome of wholeness. This is, this is verse 4. And let steadfastness have its full effect so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Those two words in that phrase, perfect, complete, lacking nothing, they're they're all getting to the same idea of of wholeness, of health, of integration. You're not not lacking in anything that that you need. And there's this deep conviction that, that refuses... Uh, anything contrary to the truth about God's character that we see in verse 117 in James, that every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow or change. Right, we long for this wholeness, this perfection, even as we struggle to attain it in this life. And God allows these things because he knows, he knows what you look like when you are whole. And this language of perfection is like the end goal this design. So you can imagine an artist who's, you know, she's, she's designing a painting or a sculpture, and she knows in, in, her, in her mind, she can see it so clearly what the final product is going to look like, even as the, the, the painting or the sculpture is still very much taking shape. She knows the end. She knows what it's going to look like when it's complete, when it's perfect, when it's lacking in nothing. And friends, Jesus, the God who created you, sees you in that way. He is able to see, this is the person that I created. And here's what they're going to look like. When they've gone through the refining work, when they, when they become all the, who they were, they were made and redeemed to be in Jesus. And he longs for that for you. There's that language of wholeness or completeness or perfection, it's all over James. Because that's, that's the goal. Of, that's where we're getting this language of real faith, this this wholeness, this completeness, this real thing. And again, this is why the most mature people that you know have probably endured some measure, if not a great measure, of suffering. Now, to be clear, suffering can also make you incredibly bitter. So it it is not an automatic, if you experience a lot of suffering, you're just going to become a wise, mature person. It can make you incredibly bitter. It can can make you incredibly... um, yeah, it can, it can crush you. But if you have a vision of James 1-4 that there is something at work in your suffering, maybe you don't understand the exact reasons why, maybe you never will, why a particular set of circumstances has entered your life, but if you have a vision that says, but I know that God is going to use this to make me whole and complete, it changes everything. And I think we have a deep lack of this in our culture today. And this is not just Christians pointing this out. Social scientists, sociologists, psychologists who are looking at kind of modern Western culture, whether that's in the United States, Europe, other places, are saying increasingly we are the cultures that are least equipped. Kind of in the history of 
kind of recorded human history to deal with suffering because in modern Western culture, it's an imminent frame, meaning that, that what really matters is what is here and now, what is tangible. And so that if you're going to find life and hope and flourishing and success and happiness, and it has to happen in the context of your lifespan on this earth right now. So the, the goal is, is only things that you can really get here and now. And maybe you wouldn't say that explicitly. I don't know. I would say that explicitly, but many of us, whether we're Christians or not, whether we're inside the church or not, we, this is the default cultural assumption that we live in, is that if I'm going to experience joy and happiness, it has to happen in the context of this life right now. So the right house, the right family, the right job, the right education, all of that has to happen now, which means that if suffering threatens those things, that it doesn't just threaten a good thing that happens to be in your life. It's actually threatening the very thing that you are looking to for rescue, for salvation, for hope. And again, this is not just Christians who are pointing out, but that we lack, in, that modern Western sort of secular culture lacks the capacity to really help people embrace suffering. What many other cultures, and certainly Christians around the world and in the past, have recognized is that if you really want to deal with suffering well and not have it turn you into a bitter, kind of crushed person, is that you have to have a vision of something beyond just these 80 years, just this life. Theologian and writer Scott McKnight puts it like this. He says, to consider trials an occasion for joy involves an act of faith. Friends, that's true. Like, that is not intuitive. It involves an act of faith. For instead of looking at the trial, we look through the trial to its potential outcome. Again, I think modern Western secular culture that we all imbibe, that we all inhabit, that is our default assumption, is that we only look at the trial, and we don't have a category to look through it to what it could bring about in our life in many cases. Those whom I know with a depth of character and compassion are those who have experienced deep loss, sorrow, hardship, trial, challenge, but have accepted it as God's way of producing wholeness in their lives. God wants real faith for us because it takes real faith to have joy through the challenges of life. And don't you want that? But we can't do it without God's help. And that's why James tells us here in the very next verse, and we're not going to unpack these. Again, I said we, we shortened scripture reading because we <laughs> weren't going to bite off all of this for the Sunday. But in verse 5, James says this, If any of you lacks wisdom, because this is going to take wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given. And so here's this little different way than, than I typically end sermons, but this is what I want to do with the rest of our time. Uh, if you're taking notes, or you've got a notebook, or you've got your phone open, or whatever, to look at the passage, I just want you to set down your phone, your notes, your pen for a moment, remove any distractions, and I want us just to pause, this is just silently to yourself, not, not out loud, but to, to pray together here at the end of the service. Because again, one of the things that James emphasizes over and over again is he wants us to be hearers of the word and doers, not just hearers only, that we can sort of like, yeah, that was good, great, and I'll just keep on going like nothing happened, but actually to put this into practice. And so as we start this series, as we pursue real faith, as we endure hardship and trials of various kinds, let's pray and ask for God's wisdom and for his work and blessing in this together. So, just 
invite you, if you're, if you're comfortable, just to, to bow your head, to pray silently to God on behalf of our church. So let's, let's do that right now. I'll, I'll prompt you with some things to pray for. Let's take a moment and pray for one another. First, pray for someone, pray for those in our church who are enduring trial right now. There's something going on for them, something that might tempt them to walk away from Jesus, to doubt him, to be bitter toward him. And ask to them to have joy. Not that replaces those things, but that is present, connecting them to God and others in this time. Pray for those who are in the midst of trial, suffering, hardship. Now pray for those of us who are about to enter into trial or suffering, and we don't know it. Um, there's, there's kind of one of those old sayings that, that either you're, you are suffering, you just suffered, or you're about to suffer. This is kind of the life that we live in a broken world. So there are some of us sitting here who we, we don't even know, it, but tomorrow, next week, next month, something is going to happen that we never would have asked for, we never would have planned, it's going to be really difficult. Pray as Jesus prayed for Peter that we would not be sifted by the evil one, but we would remain faithful, that we would be refined by God's help, that he would be preparing us even now to face that. And now pray for those who, who want to believe, who want to love Jesus, who, who want to follow him, but just can't right now. That there's been too many hard things that have happened, too much pain, too much grief, and just don't even know what to do right now. Pray for them that they would experience the still small voice of God, reminding them of his deep love and care. Pray that they can see Jesus' love on the cross for them, that he himself is not immune, has not kept himself from our grief and our suffering. Pray for those right now. Jesus, we thank you for our brother James, for your brother James, who your spirit inspired to write these words for Christians both long ago and for our benefit today. Would we cling to your finished work on the cross and the hope of your resurrection, knowing that united to you in faith, that your endurance, that your perseverance, your wholeness is credited to us, and that you are as committed uh, to us and our wholeness and goodness as you are to your own glory, because those two things are linked together. Will we find joy in that? It's in Jesus' name that we pray.